Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This episode is proudly brought to you from 99designs by Vista, a global creative platform that makes it easy for you to work with professional freelance designers from around the world. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder Fam, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today, we're speaking with Jess Hatzes in person in the studio, co-founder of Frank Body, the world's leading coffee-based skincare company. In just 10 short years, Jess and her co-founders built Frank Body from a niche product to a global brand with over 6 million customers. Through its savvy product-as-a-person marketing and bold branding, Frank Body is a business that has been acclaimed and emulated across the beauty industry. Today, we're gonna to learn from an expert on how to build an incredibly strong and effective brand identity, the logistics of building a company with multiple co-founders, and as well, some helpful insights into effective copywriting. This was an incredible interview. There's a lot to learn. Please welcome to the podcast, Jess Hatzis. So the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job AKA, how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? It's funny. No one ever asks me that, like framed that way, how I got my job. And it is, it's a job, even though I'm the founder. Uh, So it's a two-pronged story. So before Frank Body, there was Willow and Blake. Willow and Blake is a creative and branding agency that we launched, I want to say, 2010 um, as some very naive copywriters. So I'm a copywriter by trade. Um, I'd been working in-house at a music agency at the time underneath two founders and I just loved watching what their day-to-day looked like and I was really inspired by that and I had that moment where I thought, I don't want to work for you anymore even though I love you, I want to be you. Um, Quit my job and started a company with my best friend and, you know, it was that true, I mean, sorry to all the 25-year-olds out there, but we were about 25 at the time, got up, worked in our pyjamas that day, had never set up anything properly from a financial or tax perspective. Um, We just loved writing and that was what we wanted to do. And so we grew that really slowly into a full-service branding agency. And um, after a couple of years of working with clients, they were coming to us because we had a pretty youthful and irreverent and refreshing voice. But we were finding that they'd come to us for that and they were really scared of these bold ideas that we were putting in front of them. And clients would dilute it all the time. And once you start diluting a bold idea, you kind of end up in no man's land when it comes to developing a really unique and memorable brand. And we thought, well, what if we built a case study that was just us owning something from beginning to end? 
So we came at it from the creative side and then we had a couple of other co-founders at the time who were really interested in e-com and product and the scalability of that versus something that was so dependent on our time, like an agency model. Yes. And so we bounced around a whole bunch of different ideas. We were talking about like alcoholic coconut water at one point and just we knew we wanted to do something in, not that it's particularly healthy when there's booze in it, but in that health and wellness space, we wanted to use social media to scale it and we wanted to create a brand that just stood out and was like nothing that people had seen before. And one of my co-founders came up with the idea for the original coffee scrub, which was our very first product that we launched at Frank uh, 10 years ago next year. Mm-hmm. And we were making it all by hand and, you know, it was just those true no money startup bars. We had like $10,000 that we'd poured into this to get everything off the ground and that was how I got my job. So today now I'm, I act as sort of CEO, head of um, strategy at Willow and Blake and CMO at Frank Body. Yep, got you. So it's a long-winded version, sorry. <laughs> no, no, this is awesome. So um, you guys kind of went viral on Instagram. Uh, there was the hashtag, the Frank effect. And I remember those days, like, you know, just girls used to get, the product and take photos where it looked like they had like mud or dirt on them in the bath or in the shower. And it was just like a marketing machine for you guys. Um, Can you tell us around how that concept came about? And then also, yeah, the hashtag for the Frank effect and and what the the genesis was behind it. Yeah. So it came from our experience at Willow and Blake. We were finding that there was this really strong emerging platform that people think the uptake on Instagram was huge, but brands weren't playing there. They were still sort of stuck in Facebook and other traditional marketing methods. So there is an entirely untapped audience here waiting for people to come in and do something interesting. But if we're going to come in as a brand on a platform that at the time was dominated by peer-to-peer communication, we can't have this corporate tone of voice. We need to blend in essentially and sort of go into like incognito mode and make people feel like we were their friend and we weren't necessarily trying to sell them something. Um, And we knew the power of word of mouth. So we came up with this concept of Frank the character and he would just be able to allow us to talk in first person to people. So then we didn't have that corporate language that would be dominating our posts. We sent product out to anyone and everyone that would take it because we just wanted to create what is now called user-generated content. But at the time, we were just like, we just need friends and we need people taking photos. We need everybody talking about this to kind of build that groundswell. I look back and I am surprised that people did it because it wasn't a normal thing then to take a photo of yourself half naked in the bathroom using a product. Now we see every kind of product spruced on social media. But that was, we were really establishing a new behaviour then. Um, But I think people then and still now like to feel part of a community and like they're an early adopter and part of, you know, they're kind of on the in on this secret that other people don't know about. And the language that we used was so different to what people had seen in beauty, which is what we specialize in, trying to create unique identities for brands. So I think that resonated with people and they hadn't seen it before. Mm. And that was kind of how the Frank effect got going. Lots of photos of our legs covered in coffee scrubs. <laughs> and then, you know, you guys have gone on to branch out from a product perspective. Is the coffee scrub still a strong product for you guys? And like for anybody watching, does it still work just sending product to influencers, you know, product for posts? Like I'd love to hear your take now, you know, fast forward because people, oftentimes people go and, and they 
you know, watch interviews like this and go, oh yeah, it was easy back then. Mm-hmm. You know, Instagram, it's, it's so different now. It's all about TikTok. Like, yeah, so I'd love to hear your take. What, yeah. It's a really good question. I definitely think it would be more difficult to launch a brand now um, because it's more expensive and it's a really crowded space. So the original Coffee Scrub isn't as much a focus for us anymore. And we deliberately wanted our newer, more sophisticated high-performance SKUs to take over. So we've had our marketing focus on that. We stopped sending out product to influencers last year because we were sending out so much product, people weren't using it. One, it's expensive, and two, it's really wasteful. Like the carbon footprint of just sending coffee scrubs all over the world and no one's doing anything with them, it felt at odds with our sustainability ethos. So now we're very particular with who we do work with. We've created an ambassador program, which it was interesting. When we first launched the ambassador program, the uptake was pretty poor, if I'm really honest. And we had to play with the language a lot to get good uptake there. So, for example, um, if you were an influencer that I wanted to work with, I'll send you free product all year for you to post. That language automatically devalues your product. But as soon as we flipped that language to say, we'll send you $200 worth of product every quarter, you're giving that product a monetary value. It feels more meaningful to the person receiving it. And that small tweak changed everything for our ambassador program. That wasn't me. That was one of my really clever team who just sat there and looked at this and was like, why isn't it working? It's because I am not placing any value on this product. Um, So we've found that a nice way to build an ambassador program with people who genuinely want to receive our product and who want to create good content for our community. And then we have a lot more paid promotions than we would have previously, but we're shifting that focus to TikTok and less on Instagram. Yep. Okay. And can you give us an understanding how big that ambassador program is? Is it like 50 creators, 100, 200, 500? So it's very new. We only launched it in the middle of the year. And yep. it's circa 50 people now, but we yep. really want to scale that pretty significantly to yep. say 1,000, 2,000 people over the next 12 months um, with a huge focus on the US. Yep, got you. And you said as well, and I have to ask around TikTok, tell mm-hmm. us more. Well, I mean, I'm 36, so I feel like a geriatric when I use TikTok. Um, and we've tried lots of different things. So we were that brand that just Instagram felt so intuitive mm. and I just, we looked at it, we knew what to do. Yeah. We looked at TikTok and it was very different for us as a brand because TikTok really required there to be a person or a face to that particular page, whereas you didn't need that mm. on Instagram. Yes. And we were a brand that had never been developed around the founders' personas. Like yes. in the, the business community, people know who we are, but our customers don't know who Jess is and yeah. they don't really care. They care about the product. So we found that sort of a barrier to entry for us and there was a lot of pressure on the team to try and create very of the moment funny content so we've really flipped our strategy to not necessarily be about our content creation but utilizing the platform of influencers and it's just with the goal of making the brand famous Um, so I think there's been some really interesting case studies in the beauty space from like Glow Recipe and CeraVe they've scaled and basically put their products on the map through that type of strategy Mm. can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah yeah so rather than us focusing on creating our own videos, we'll still do that. We we really want to create great content for TikTok, but it wasn't our strength. And I think one of the best things you can do as a marketer is acknowledge your weak points. I thought we're spending so much time creating content. It's not gaining traction. This, like, 
I always reference that very cliche quote around, you know, doing the same thing, expecting different results is the definition of insanity. And we've been doing this for a year and a half. I'm like, this is just stupid at this point. What a waste of time. What a waste of money. We need to try something else. So there's all these amazing and highly respected influencers, dermatologists, skin influencers, beauty experts on this platform. And there's more people listening to what they have to say than the equivalent type of influencer on Instagram. Let's just put all of our influencer budget into this with the goal of making Frank Body famous on TikTok and honing in on one or two SKUs. Um, so that's pretty new. We've only launched that, I'd say, six weeks ago, and it's a really big focus for us into 2023. Um, I'll report back in a year and let you know how that's going. Okay. All right. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for sharing. So um, switching gears, why is creating a product-based business enticing from your perspective versus an agency? Yeah, I love both, which is why I still do both. Um, I love getting to work with clients and help them develop their, you know, their business and creative strategy. But on the flip side, there is a limit to how much you can do. And I'm an ambitious person. Um, And I didn't like that time became my restrictor and I could only do so much in a set amount of time and that was it there was nothing I could do beyond that so creating a product meant that even when I was asleep this product was sort of this living breathing entity that was doing its thing and connecting with customers while I wasn't there there's something really exciting about that for me comparing early days Frank to now what do you miss it's like chalk and cheese if I'm really honest Um, there's more pressure now, I think. We launched in a bit of a laissez-faire way because we didn't know what we were getting into so that I miss almost my own naivety about what we could do. Now, after 10 years of doing this and my job is so different now, um, I live in spreadsheets and budgets and it's very interesting in its own way but there was something about this kind of endless possibility when we were launching and I think that early stage that excitement that enthusiasm that you have i know they're so intoxicating i do miss that because it's hard to keep replicating 10 years in Mm. yeah i think that's a that's a common journey for founders right like you start this thing and it's fun to create something it's fun like i remember in the early days founder it was so much fun like I, I had a falling out with my housemate and I moved in with my parents temporarily when I went full-time on Founder and I was living in my parents' basement and I used to work until 4.30 a.m. and then just sleep into 11 and then just get up and do more work. It was it was some of the funnest times. Yeah. Like, And you just have no care, right? And you're just like hustling on this thing and like I know hustle culture people don't like it, but like you've got to work hard to, to, to build yeah. something of true worth and significance and it takes a long time. But... If you fast forward, because yeah, I'm I, I'm actually turning thirty six soon, and uh, you know, you said we said off camera like founder and Frank started around the same time, and like you fast forward now, like when you're the CEO or you know an executive, you're right, you're CMO, you don't really get to do the fun stuff anymore. It's it's a lot of people leadership and for some people that is fun but for the founder that i think the idea of creating things and and just kind of you know marketing and selling and just like yeah and now you have to worry about numbers Mm -hmm. people leadership and inspiring others and like 
It's very different. It's not probably what we thought we were signing up to. I could not agree more. I just had no idea. And I remember about halfway in this journey, my language switched to me. I know I'm still the founder, but now I feel like I have a job because Mm. it's this sort of um, daily grind. I feel really stupid when I use coffee puns and I'm talking that frank. But um, (laughs) it, it changed from... I, I used to feel like I had more autonomy and flexibility over my own time, my own schedule, and I have I feel more restricted than I ever have in my life because you have so much responsibility when you have a board to report to and you're a C-suite member in a $100 million company. It's not fun and games anymore. Um, and you have to sort of pass the baton and let your team have that moment and now it's about them. They're probably in a better life space and headspace to be the creatives and really fun, you know, driving members of the team. Um but yeah, I do look at them sometimes and like, oh, God, I miss that so much. Want to swap places for just a day. Um, but it's fun at the Willow and Blake side because I get to sort of tap in and out of we work with so many early stage founders mm. that I get that opportunity to feel that real energy and excitement again by working with them. So I live between two lands right now. Yeah. So, look, it's a different set of challenges, right? And, you know, it, Obviously, it is fun growing a business too, but, you know, with more growth, there's more problems and, like, yeah, different set of challenges. So um, I'm curious around just your co-founders and the different roles they play. Can you talk us through that? Yeah. Because originally you had four or five co-founders, right? There were five of us. Yes. Um, one co-founder moved on about seven years ago. Yep. Um, now there's four remaining co-founders and we've been friends for, I don't know, 15 or so years um, Bree, who I co-founded Willow and Blake with, um, we've we've found it really interesting because our background and our expertise are so similar. So it was always more challenging for us to sort of carve out our own unique path. At the four of us, for the first couple of years, it was just a jumbled mess. Like we're all trying to do everything. We had our lanes that we naturally went into, but we didn't sort of clarify our roles enough. I think that was a really big challenge for us in those early years. As a founder, you feel like you're supposed to be across everything. So you need to take a step back, clarify your role if you've got multiple founders and just stay in your lane. And when you come together to ask questions, that's your time. But there's nothing more frustrating than someone like sticking their head into your project halfway through in any role as a founder or an employee and then like getting out and like getting in the way and changing what you're trying to do. I also think it's a waste of time. Mm. Like someone's already doing that job. Don't just double up and do the same thing. Do the job that you need to do. So now we're much better at that. So Steve is CEO, Alex is COO, I'm CMO and Bree is head of new revenue and growth. And so she's been leading a really cool project that we're launching next year um, and that was always a challenge for Brie and I too. Who's going to take on that role of CMO? And we sort of naturally found our positions. And Brie is far, far better at people management and seeing projects through from beginning to end than I am. Like she just knocks me out of the park doing that. So that role was just so suited for her. Um, so yeah, we finally found our way, and we just come together in a founder catch up each week and. That's when we use our, our time to sort of cross over and work on projects. Yep. So uh, how, what was your role in the original days and how have the roles changed? We didn't have titles. So, no and titles. We, no titles and we did everything. So every component you could think of that falls into the remit of marketing, myself, Brie and Eri did and we just did 
all of it together because in those days it was a volume game. Yeah. Um, so we managed all the PR, we did all of the community service and customer, um, the community management and customer service. We did all of the influencer posting, like sending out product and all the communication, all of the content creation, emails. We just, you just don't stop working until we brought on our first employee and they started to do the customer service and then we brought on the next person and they took PR off our hands. Um, and it was about three, two or three years in, I put my hand up and said I'd really like to take on a formalised role as creative director. Yes. And I did that role for a portion of time. We had an a external employee come in and she took on the CMO role so none of the founders were doing it. Yes. Because we didn't feel that we had that expertise at that time. Fast forward another five years and I really felt ready to take on that CMO role. So I put my hand up again and said, this is how I'd like to evolve my role. I've grown past the point of wanting to be creative director and I think that's often forgotten about founders. You also have the need and the desire to progress in your career. You don't want to be doing the same thing day in, day out for 15 years. So um, I took on that role of CMO about four years ago. Um, went on mat leave briefly in between there and that was a challenge in itself but yeah I do love this role I like the strategic side of it I find that really challenging and interesting and you have a team of leaders underneath you so you're, you're leading a team of leaders talk to me around kind of how you've been able to develop as a leader during this time because um Oftentimes when someone starts their company, they have the title of CEO, but they're not actually really the CEO. Mm -hmm. Like if you actually meet experienced C-suite leaders, there is a big difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So tell me, how have you, how have you been, to, been able to develop as a leader? What have you, yeah. I think time and mistakes are what led me to be the type of leader that I am now. I know my leadership style. I like to lead from a place of vulnerability and honesty. So if I'm having a crappy day, I'm not going to come to the office in a pessimistic and horrible mood. I'll just talk to my team honestly and be like, oh, my daughter kept me up all night last night. I'm really tired, so I'm struggling to focus a little bit in this meeting. And you create a safe space for your team to then also talk openly and honestly. And when you work in a psychologically safe space, which is how my old 2IC you know, talked about our space, people can do better work. So that's my real goal as a leader. My team need to feel safe. They need to feel nurtured. doesn't mean that they're not ambitious and they're not held to, you know, their KPIs and they're a very accountable team. But I don't think anyone can do really great work if they're constantly worried about how they're being perceived. So that's my leadership style. It took me a long time to get there. Um, I know I don't manage down from a to-do list perspective very well just due to time. Yes. Um, so I'm very fortunate to, and I guess deliberately, we hire people that can manage up really well. Um, it gives them the opportunity to really grow and it means that my time isn't spent looking at other people's to-do lists. It's being there to answer core questions for them when they need me. Yeah. Talk to me about friends and business. You said you guys were friends for 15 years or have been friends for 15 years. So five years in, you started a, this incredible company. How have you been able to manage those relationships? Because people often talk about like don't mix friends with business. It's not without its challenges. I I think when you have that layer of friendship involved, you're when you need to have difficult conversations, you're worried about how it's going to impact your friendship outside of work. 
Um, we've gotten much better at that. In the early days, I'd say that we just didn't talk about things that we needed to enough. And, you know, if someone wasn't pulling their weight, which will naturally happen, I would have been that person at one point in time. Like everyone got ebbs and flows in the way that they bring motivation and energy to work. We, we wouldn't have talked about that. Whereas now we're so much better at just having honest conversations with each other and understanding that this is a conversation happening inside the workplace and I'm still going to go out and see you on the weekend. We're going to get all our kids together and have a fantastic time. I think that comes with the level of maturity as you get older as well. You know, 35-year-old me versus 25-year-old me are two different people and I cared so much about what other people thought. I was terrified of confrontation. So I would never say what I thought and then... If you're that type of person, it will resonate with you when I say you have a lot of anger inside you because you have so many things that you haven't said. They're just building up. And now I just try not to do that and will talk honestly and give my opinion about things. Um, I think that's true of any workplace, but it's particularly true when there's friendships involved. And making sure you have honest conversations is without a doubt the way to preserve a friendship. So we're very lucky that we all still love each other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's those honest conversations that's what builds trust. And if everyone can have those real conversations, have those honest conversations, that's how you can build trust. And with that trust, then you build solid relationships. Yeah. And I think that going back to our previous points around clarifying JDs, mm. like th- simple things like that, frameworks that help everyone understand what each other's doing. So you don't have to ask questions. You can look at someone's JD, you can look at their KPIs. You know what it is that they're working towards. It automatically takes away the what are you doing every day sort of question that comes up naturally in business. Hey, Founder Fam, I want to take a quick break from the conversation to talk about a pain point for a lot of you out there, and that's finding quality design help to build your brand. Whether it's a logo, website, or packaging, you can spend hours trying to do it yourself and still end up with nothing. That's where 99designs by Vista comes in. With its contest model, you can invite an entire global creative community to participate in your project and submit ideas. It's like having an entire design department at your fingertips. And at Founder, we've worked with 99designs before in the past to create a special issue of our magazine. And it really transformed the quality of the project by having a bunch of concepts to choose from and being able to collaborate with creators from all over the world. From pitch to perfection, 99designs will be there with you every step of the way. They'll help you transform your idea in your head into a valuable piece of content or branding for your business. And together with 99designs, we're offering you a $30 discount on your first design contest. So just head to 99designs.com forward slash founder to learn more or get started on your project today. Okay, now let's jump back into the episode. So I'd love to talk about the branding stuff because like... That's something that's been so special around Frank. Um, Ariana Grande notoriously copied you guys. I forgot about that. Can you tell us about that? Tell me the story, what happened? When was it? What happened? Oh, yeah. Okay, so I think it was maybe two to three years in. Yeah. And Ariana Grande was blowing up and she had been gifted the scrub by someone. I don't know who and loved it so there were a few interviews where she was talking about frank body and i'm like this is so cool like she's blowing up she loves us this tiny brand from melbourne um this is amazing this is going to really help us grow in the u.s and then fast forward six months it's like ariana grande has released her own coffee scrub at Ulta, and i thought like we're done she has this 
platform of millions of dedicated fans that she's talking to, like there's no way that we can compete against this. This might be the end of Frank. And it wasn't because I forgot how strong the brand that we had created was and how easy it is for some celebrities to just slap their name on a product and think that that's going to be enough to sell it to people. But people are clever. Um, And I don't think a lot of brands give consumers enough credit for their smarts. And it showed me that our customer base was so loyal and that we weren't we were experts in not only brand, but we made really, really high quality products. And as we continued to release new products, that coffee scrub just sort of sat on the shelf, not going anywhere because nothing was done with it. And I don't think it even exists anymore. It just sort of faded off into the background. But at the time, my God, I thought our business was over. Mm. So you guys have had a lot of copycats. Um, you couldn't really patent the product could you with the coffee scrub right we did look at it but it's you know you only have to vary something by 10 percent for then your patent to be void and it was a lot of money and a lot of effort for not a guaranteed protection yeah we had so many copycats in those early days like people would copy the product they'd copy the brand and the tone of voice but people rip off the source code from the website it was just like the lowest of lows in terms of what it takes to, you know, launch a business. Um, We were worried about it for a period of time and then we thought all this energy that we're spending worrying about these copycats is energy that could be spent growing our business and focusing on how to differentiate ourselves and it highlighted the need for us to no longer be that Instagram brand, which is how people refer to us. Oh, yeah, that brand on Instagram. Mm. I thought this is dangerous because, yes, we are and it was amazing to launch our brand that way but we need to build our credibility as a skincare and beauty brand and no longer be talked about as that Instagram brand. So what strategic moves do we need to make to leave the pack of copycats behind and become a serious player in the beauty and skincare space? And so that led us to our partnership with Mecca when we launched in Mecca, uh, I'd say five, it's five years ago actually, Um, because who does beauty and skincare better in Australia than Mecca? not really anybody. So that partnership was one that was sort of groundbreaking for them because their whole business model was taking brands from overseas and offering them exclusively in Australia, but they knew how strong our brand was. Um, And that alignment was sort of the catalyst for Frank 2.0, where we really started to focus on more efficacious skincare that was really solving a lot of body and skin concerns for people. And we just obviously Instagram is still important because that's how we communicate with our customers, but we were not that Instagram brand anymore and that really separated us. Yeah, no, I'd love to explore that a little more because this is a common thing that happens to people when they create an iconic product or brand and just get tons of copycats. Like this like uh, this bottle, mm-hmm. right? Like this was the first time-marked water bottle and it was copies. Yep. Um, so how long did it take for you guys to strategically start to kind of Re, not rebuild, but evolve, evolve the Frank brand because you guys have done really well and I've loved to talk about retail. Like I, I know made some great plays there, but yeah, how long did that take? And obviously you had that partnership, but what else did you guys do? How long did it take to get into other products and other SKUs and yeah, find more hero products? Can you yeah. talk us through that? I'd say it's still going because yeah. I think as soon as you think you've evolved and it's done, you're probably dead in the water. Yeah. 
I think the major shift in how the brand was perceived took about two years. People saw us in Mecca, at least in the Australian landscape, and they thought, oh my God, okay, that's that brand I know from Instagram and look at all of these other products that they have. That was a problem we identified. People knew the coffee scrub and they, unless you were a loyal customer, you didn't know a lot about the other SKUs. And so that was where we came up with that goal. The best thing that can happen is that we move that hero SKU out of the top sellers and we grow the rest of our range. And so we've successfully done that. But that took, you know, that's years of work of developing new products that you think are going to surpass the hero product in sales uh, and really strategic retail partnerships in other regions. So the U.S. is a big place um, of business for us. So we partnered with Ulta and Target in the U.S., and in the UK, we worked with a lot of more high-end specialty retailers as well as Boots so that we could – Boots and places like Boots and Alto gave us huge distribution, but then we needed those smaller retailers that weren't necessarily about driving a lot of volume but built clout and credibility for the brand and kept us front of mind for those early adopters and trendsetters. Um, and so it's still something that we work hard on today. But it's really nice to not hear people really ever say that sentence anymore. Like, oh, yeah, that brand from Instagram. Mm. I don't remember the last time I heard that, which I love. Yeah, that's awesome. So I think I saw you guys in Urban Outfitters as well. Are you guys there or you were there? We were there, but we exited Urban Outfitters because they some policies of theirs were really at odds with our sustainability focus. And so we made the decision to exit that retailer. Got you. And when it comes to cracking retail, so one thing I've noticed in the past few years is there was – there was this wave of like e-commerce brands, purely direct response, paid advertising, social, and then iOS 14 happened mm. and there was a lot of brands that really, really struggled through that transition. And the common theme that I've seen amongst successful brands still thriving through that transition are ones that had a retail arm or a significant retail presence and they had not as much reliant on paid advertising. I'm curious to hear when, so you guys started doing retail about five years ago, was Mecca the first big partnership? Yeah, Mecca was the first big partnership and pretty soon after, I'd say within six to 12 months, we rolled out into major retailers in the US and UK. Got it. So what advice would you have to founders that have a brand purely direct-to-consumer right now and they're looking to get into retailers and working with big retailers? Um, Understand why you're doing it. So for us, it was about diversification, building credibility, diversifying revenue sources. We'd gone through um, what it feels like to have all of your eggs in one basket a few years prior when the Instagram algorithm changed and Mm. we were so reliant on that channel. That changed and everything changed overnight for us. Really? Uh, So you lost like sales? We lost sales. We lost engagement. We lost the ability to work more easily with influencers. Everything became more expensive. So we learned that lesson early on. It's very Mm. dangerous to be doing anything in just one one channel. channel. So how do we diversify that? So our marketing mix changed significantly and then it led into those conversations in the subsequent years about retail. Um, The advice I can give you is... Go in very curious. So I wouldn't make assumptions about what any retailer can do for you. I think going into those meetings, you need to be asking a lot of questions and talking to as many brands that are in those retailers as possible. You have to do your due diligence and you have to understand the upside that comes with moving into those retailers, but all of the potential downside. 
So you might be working in some retail, like partnering with some retailers, but losing money for the first three years because they expect you to invest so much in, um, you know, VM or marketing. So that channel could be running at a loss. Can you afford to do that for two years until it becomes a positive contribution margin channel three or five years down the track? Um, So those sorts of things, I think, if you're not an expert in that space, which we weren't, and we learned some of those lessons the hard way, find someone who is and bring on someone in your team or even if they're a consultant or just talk to other brands because you'd be surprised how much other founders are willing to share. Um, Learn as much as you can. And then don't be too swayed by what a buyer at a retail store wants you to do. Like know who you are as a brand, know what your customers want when it comes to products and stick to your guns because they'll sort of push you in a direction but they've got no skin in the game. So if it doesn't work, it's not them paying for you. It's you paying for that return to vendor and all of that stock that you've created that didn't move because some buyer told you that that was going to be the thing. Um, And we've made that mistake as well. So they're my two lessons. Listen to some people and don't listen to others. Yeah. (laughs) What does it mean to you, the phrase risk it for the biscuit? Yeah, that's like the lifeblood or the heart of Frank Body and Willow. Um, and it was Bree who came up with that. Yeah. So, you know, we don't, sometimes we don't live it as much as we should. But the, the idea of that was that, you know, if, if we never take a risk, you never get the reward. Um, and so as we grow, especially with, you know, so much more responsibility, larger team and a board, it's really easy to become risk adverse. You don't have that much to lose in the early days, but once you have something to lose, it's very difficult to take the risks that are the things that really catapult you forward. So we have that. When you walk into our office, there's this huge sign, risk it for the biscuit as soon as you walk in. So it's the first thing you see every single day. And when we're sitting there umming and ahhing about things we should do sometime, we can't make a decision, we sort of look at each other and we're like, yeah, risk it, let's do it. And it's amazing, like the whole team have embraced that saying it's what we do it's part of your culture yep awesome you, you mentioned a couple of times you guys have a external board mm-hmm. um so you've brought in outside venture can you tell us around that journey and when did you do that and how you made that decision yeah so it started pretty early for us but by accident we were not looking for external capital because we didn't need it we we're very lucky to be profitable from you know the first week that was because our Investment was so low and we did everything ourselves. Yes. Um, but I always say like the sharks were circling because that's what it felt like. Like all these emails started coming in from VCs all over the world and we knew nothing about this space 10 years ago. And we started taking phone calls out of interest to just learn about what was going on. Um, so we spent hours and hours. It was really exciting. Like There was this mm. flattering element of people like, I think your brand's cool enough that I potentially want to give you money. But we didn't know what we, we didn't need the money. So we thought, what are we having these conversations for? So we, I'd say we did that for about two years, just kind of casually being courted by different types of investors until we realized that what we wanted was not necessarily just money, but strategic money. Yep. So we stopped having conversations with most VCs and PEs and we really focused on strategic partners. So think um, Estee Lauder, L'Oreal, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, those types of partners. And it was Unilever that ended up being our first investor and joined the board. God, time management is not a field. Yeah, I'm like, it's all a field of blur. (laughs) 
five, six years ago. Yep. Um, so they were our first partner and then went through subsequent rounds with us. And then we brought on uh, private equity money in 2021 from a Chinese firm called Everye. Yes. And that, again, even though it was PE money, it was a very strategic partnership for us because we were trying to push into China now that the legislation around animal testing had finally changed. And we knew we could we didn't have the skill set or the knowledge to push into China ourselves, but we knew that there was so much opportunity for the brand there. So working with a partner who could help us localise our operations, have a team in Shanghai was, you know, even though the money came in from them, it was the knowledge that comes in and they sit on the board too and... Um, so we sort of pseudo-manage the Chinese team together. That's been phenomenal. And we're yeah. just very slow and considered with the type of money in, that we took on. That's super smart. So is China a big market for you guys now or it's still early days? Very early days. So about a year of getting things set up and we launched in the middle of the year and we're exceeding our sales targets so far, which is great. Yeah, yeah wow, that's interesting. So um, how, many, how, many, how many rounds have you guys done? Can you share that? Two formal rounds with yep. a smaller round in between from UV. Yep, yeah, got you. And can you share if you guys are profitable now or you're still sacrificing profit for growth? We go back and forward depending on the year. So going into next year, I think every business in the world should be focused on profitability. Um, I don't think if you're growing profitably into a recession, it's probably... <laughs> in my opinion, not the smartest business decision um, because there's a lot of risk already in the market. Um, so that's our focus for both businesses next year. Grow, but do it in a very smart way. Yep. And so talk to me around team. Um, you said you had an office now in... In Cremorne. Oh, oh yeah. in Shanghai? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, talk to us around how it all works. We've had... Many different types of team structures. Um, so at one point we had localised UK, US and Australia, but the pandemic changed a lot of that for us. Like many businesses, we had to make some really tough decisions around team and we ended up closing the offices down because no one was using them. Mm, so, um, yeah, it was yeah. really interesting. This, it was just this overhead and people wanted to work from home. So we sort of formally closed the office even though we still have team members there and we've gone for a really different sort of satellite team member structure um, overseas. And in Australia, we've got our headquarters here where people work in a bit of a hybrid model as well. So we're a smaller team than we were two years ago. And I think that was the right, well, no, that was the right decision for us. It was becoming too complex, almost too big for what the size of the business required as we looked to grow. And it was just probably the same for so many businesses, unfortunate timing that we made a lot of those decisions just on the cusp of the pandemic starting. Um, mm. And so we sort of had to unwind some of those. We're in a good spot now where um, it feels like a more manageable size, even though there's still 50-odd people. Uh, it's very different to 100. Yeah, that's so interesting you say that because we went through a similar journey as well. The business got really bloated and mm -hmm. Just the speed at which we were moving was really slow and nothing was working. Uh, yeah, so it sounds like, yeah, so crazy that journey you guys have been on. Yeah. Yeah, it's really easy, I think, to go, oh, I need a person to do this. I need a person to do this. And then your team will start feeding that up to you. Like, I can't oh, do this anymore yeah, and yeah. I need another person. And sometimes they're right. Like, sometimes people are doing too much work. Mm. But sometimes I think people's version of growth is that they just need other people to manage rather than just doing something themselves. And sometimes it's so much quicker to do it yourself than it is to manage an entirely different person. Um, and 
the team have really gotten on board with this way of thinking of do less and do it better. And we're doing all this crap that just didn't matter. It didn't change anything. Like, why are we doing this? It's just time and money and it moves the needle 0%. Like, this, this is stupid. So I came back, I always use the analogy, I came back with like a machete when I got back from maternity leave. <laughs> like I only went for six months and a lot changed in that time. I'm like, nope, 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 we don't need any of this crap. Let's just strip it back to bare basics and stop making life harder for ourselves, do the things that work, and then we will have the time to do, you know, the occasional really creative and meaningful moment for the brand and we'll do it really well rather than just trying to be like in campaign mode all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, what's been the most challenging time at Frankel for you as a founder? Can you tell us a story? Oh, yeah, there's been so many. I think when um, one of my business partners left about seven years ago, that was probably the most challenging time. Um, You know, our, our friendships in the business were so entwined and that was a real cultural upheaval for both Willow and Blake and Frank that was incredibly challenging and I felt heartbroken. We all did. Um, Time heals those sort of wounds though. Uh, I'd say the second biggest challenge, which I just mentioned, was coming back from maternity leave or going on and coming back. Um, I stepped away from my active day-to-day roles for six months, but I also, your director and founder duties never end. So my daughter was, I think, about six days old and we were in the middle of the every year raise. Yes. So I'm literally breastfeeding her on board calls, meeting with, you know, people that want to give us millions and millions of dollars, reading really intense contracts while I'm completely sleep deprived, recovering from surgery. And, you know, it just wow. doesn't stop when you're a founder. And so I was in this most beautiful time of my life as a, a woman and a mother and in this really hard time as a founder because it wasn't it was exciting but it was it's very difficult to sort of be on your a game (laughs) dealing with that sort of stuff and contributing meaningfully to a board call when you've slept for 40 minutes and you know you're trying to navigate your life as a a new parent um Mm. so all of it was very complex and my i didn't realize how much of my identity was tied up in what i did for a living until i stepped away and i wasn't doing that every single day and i found myself at a loss. Mm. Do you have as much ambition now? I do. It's different. My priorities have shifted. I want to be an amazing role model for my daughter. And I think, you know, I was so lucky that I came from a family where I had two incredible working parents and they set that stage for me. Um, But beyond that, there weren't a lot of female icons to look up to there weren't many female businesswomen that we knew of Mm -hmm. and I I want that to be different for my daughter and the next generation so I feel this sort of sense of responsibility but I don't want to be a workaholic because I also want to be present with my family Um, Mm -hmm. and I think there's more important things in life like I think we can still work really hard and enjoy what we're doing but not be all consumed by it Um, Mm -hmm. I think you bring that energy then back into your work if you're more fulfilled and I don't want to say balanced because I don't think balance is achievable, but you have a, a, a different rhythm or flow in your life and you can feed that back into your work. Yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy, this idea that you want to have balance, but then it's never enough. But then at the same time, you want to build and achieve great things with the, you know, this business or whatever you create. 
but then it has to be an obsession to actually build something and you have to do it for a long time. Yep. Like one of my old mentors who's now a billionaire, he said to me, I never forget to me what he said to me, he said, Nathan, it takes seven to ten years to build anything of true worth and significance, plus you have to have that obsession. And it's it's so difficult. I don't think you can master it like that balance. Like even, you know, all these incredibly successful people that I've interviewed, one question I like to ask them is, is it ever enough? Because we all have that story. We tell ourselves, oh, when we get here, when I get this, or when revenue's this, or when we get this person or this team member, or when this happens, then it'll be okay. Or, or not even be okay, but I'll feel great. Or And it's this, it's this crazy battle that you fight. Like I'm curious now that you're a new mum, how, how are you working with that balance? Are you heavy on your calendar? Or like, yeah, talk me through that, that dichotomy. I acknowledge about myself now that I'm perpetually unsatisfied because I'm always chasing the next thing. Even every time I get to this sort of milestone that I was working towards, I barely celebrate it. My brain goes straight into the next mode. It's a blessing and a curse because it is I, it is the thing that propels me forward. I think it's part of the reason I have found success in my working life. But it is also a reason that I suffer from anxiety and I really struggle to sleep and I don't know how to switch off very well and just be present in the moment. And so you sort of have to take it with its, its good side and its bad. As I get older, I'm learning more about what is important to me as an individual and that's definitely sort of impacting the way I work but I definitely struggle trying to manage my time you know I'll get to the end of tonight and I'll be cooked because this week has been Mm. crazy Um, you know I get to the office I drop my daughter at childcare I get to the office I am in I mean legitimate back-to-back meetings I have to excuse myself to go to the bathroom because I don't have a break between meetings until I leave the office and then I get my daughter and I deal with a toddler for two hours and bed and all that sort of stuff and try and enjoy my time with her. And then I work again because there's so much to do or our board are in the UK and Shanghai. So our board meeting on Wednesday night started at 7.30 p.m. after I'd spent 12 hours in the office. So, you know, it's just the reality of growing a business and that's still 10 years in. So, you know, flash flashback to years one to five that was a light day (laughs) like I would sleep for a few hours because I remember we were getting out there was no scheduling tools so your alarm would go off one two three four o'clock in the morning we'd take it in turns to get up and post for the U.S. market it was brutal I was young and I had energy to do it back then so um kids these days like you schedule everything it's so easy uh, it's it's challenging and I have moments where I feel like I could pack it all in and just run away and live on a farm somewhere and never come back. And then I'm like, would that satisfy me? Maybe for a time I'd feel like I'm having a break and then I know I'd get itchy feet again. I, mm. I like to be busy. Mm. So what advice would you have to uh, working mums that uh, are career-focused as well? I, It's okay to just you're always going to feel like you're letting someone down. Um, Sometimes I feel like I'm a terrible mother because I am not with her all the time or then I feel like I'm a bad boss because I have to leave and my daughter's sick. You always feel like you're letting somebody down and 
you don't I never understood what that feeling was like until I was in it myself and it's a frustrating way to live but I think we're just I'm like, can I swear on here? Like, of course, we're all of in course. the shit together is <laughs> yeah. basically what I think. Um, make sure you you work with people that understand that because I have heard some horror stories from friends who are mothers um, in workplaces that just are not supportive of parents at all. Um, and it's also a season. I know it's not going to be like this forever. It's just that early stage where they're little and they're toddlers that it's fucking hard and then they become a bit more self-sufficient and I think – I hope, God, I hope you get some sort of autonomy back um, and the scheduling eases off a little bit. Mm. All right, a few more questions. Let's do it. Love this conversation, but I'm conscious of time as well. (laughs) Uh, Do you think the beauty industry is oversaturated? I am constantly amazed at how many new brands come out and how they still continue to gain traction and followers. I'm like, how much stuff are we all buying this is ridiculous um i i don't necessarily think it's oversaturated i think we're going to see more and more of the legacy brands have their market share taken away from them which i think is a good thing um it's giving space and opportunity to younger founders and more diverse founders i'm really really thrilled to see how many women and people of color are launching brands now and seeing the success that they deserve and actually creating products for themselves who like, you know, a like-minded customer base rather than some like 70-year-old dude in an ivory tower trying to market to a 20-year-old girl and he doesn't know what she wants. Like that phase of beauty is over, um, which I think is really, really important. Uh, how much longer it can be sustained, I'm not sure. Um, I think you're definitely seeing a, a slower uptake of like capital and investment into the space. So that's changing. Um, but I don't think it's over yet. And there's a while to go. Okay. Copywriting fundamentals for our audience and community. If you give us maybe one piece of gold that you could share from all your years of copywriting. Well, I'm biased. Hire a professional. Yeah. <laughs> Just because... <laughs> Just because you can write doesn't mean you are a writer. Uh, think of it like any other trade or function within the business. Some people are really skilled and that is one of your like key elements to convert somebody from a potential customer into a customer. So get a professional to do it. You wouldn't, maybe in your early days, I get it, you don't have budget and that's always harder. But once you have that money in any field of your business, invest in an expert to do it. Like you wouldn't draft your own legal contracts, so why would you think that you can do all of your own copywriting forever? But, you know, I have like financial incentive to say that because I own an agency with professional copywriters, but even if I didn't, I say the same about every function. What are the key elements to building a successful brand? I think gut needs to play a huge role in it. So we were talking about this yesterday with the Willow and Blake team, um, they, it was really interesting. I was watching them on a Slack channel analyze Kia's rebrand. And um, so Kia went from that kind of clunky badge to a really slick new icon that you can tell the goal was to move them from being kind of a mass um, unaspirational brand to something a little bit more 
akin with the luxury space and a bit more premium. And that logo change was the significant shift in the way that the brand was perceived. But when you're reading it from afar, Kia looks like KN. So there was this huge surge in Google searches for KN car. And the conversation in some of the media publications was around, you know, this branding mistake and KN car. So naturally, being data-minded, I went into Google Trends. I wanted to see the volume of how much people are actually Googling KN car versus the overall growth of Kia and market share. And that far outweighed anything that was going on with this little misunderstanding of the logo update. Mm. So my point is that when you're creating a brand, it's really easy to nitpick things. And that's when you end up diluting the brand and the overall goal. You need to go with your gut and you can evolve things over time if you make a really stupid or critical mistake, but like you have to make a strong statement as a brand. You have to stand for something. You have to be unique and craft your own identity and voice. And if you don't do that, yeah, you might see some early success, but that's not the type of brand that is going to be memorable and sustained over 10 or 20 or 30 years. I'm so passionate about that. Thank you for sharing. All right, so we're going to move to the hot seat round, rapid fire questions and answers. All right. Would you rather start a business with a great product or a great brand? A great brand. Why? Because you can build a community around a great brand that you can launch a product to later. What's the favourite part of your job? Watching, it's the hardest part and the favourite part. Watching my team do the things that I used to do and do it better. What have you learned about yourself the most since starting Frank? That I value honesty. Last question. This one's my favourite. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, Trini, because I was supposed to go to dinner with her. Uh, And I know you had her on the podcast a few weeks ago and um, our dates didn't match up and I was on a family holiday and I had so much FOMO because I missed this dinner that was four years in the making. So if she listens to this, please take me out for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, awesome. Well, look, thank you so much, Jess. You were great. Thank you for being so open, honest, vulnerable and just really sharing all your experiences these past, uh, what, 10, 12 years since... uh, Bernie Willow and also Frank. So uh, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Nate. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.